0: All right, on your handout, I printed this up before, uh, like on Thursday. Uh, this, this message really has two titles. Uh, the, the new identity is, is, is what we're going to finish with. That's true, but I also want to... Uh, this is also a picture of what I think of as the wounded life. It's another one of our identities that's very easy to, to attract as we go through life. Uh, the, um, what do I mean by wounded life? Uh, Dave, we're going to skip the, the, little, the little pictures at the beginning. Uh, what do I mean by the wounded life? All of us, just by being a part a human being and relating to other human beings, all of us are wounded people. And we also have dished out our wounds, onto, uh, inflicted wounds on other people. So when I say the wounded life, I am not implying that somehow. That, uh, that your life is, is less wounded than it really is or that you're unique. All of us have wounds. But what I mean is, is that for some people, our wounds become the story of our life, the primary story of our life. And it happens sort of like this uh, in, ge- in general. Uh, we start off with uh, the God-centered life, and we're really not interested in that, Um, we we know what to do, the managed life, and if we just do A, B, and C and do what we're supposed to do, either in the Christian world or in the non-Christian world, we're pretty sure we know what to do. We'll get the good life that we want. We start with the the managed life. And at some point in time, God says, oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm after. And he puts up walls around us, and we hit those, those brick walls. And so we go to plan B. And plan B is what I think of as the blessed life Um, which I'm not going to get the whole kit and caboodle that I thought I was going to get, but at least I'll settle for one good thing. Now, this is the story of Gomer, what I think of as the relationship getting life. That's one way of getting that one picture of the blessed life. It can be a career, it can be money, possessions, fame and fortune, whatever, but the blessed life, I'm not going to get it all, but at least I'll get something. Uh, And then God says, oh, no, that's not what I'm after either. And, and he puts up walls around us, and we run into those. And we go uh, to the next plan C, which we looked at in the life of Gideon, the protected life. This life is hard. It's tough. And I've got to be on my, my toes because it's very painful. Uh, I'm not going to take any risks. And you find yourself, the primary storyline of your life without even knowing it becomes fear. And protection and, and making sure that you run, don't run into criticism or other people or rejection. And that becomes the storyline of your life. Now, at some point in time, for some people, that storyline is still too painful. And they're not getting what they thought they were the protection that they wanted. And so it seems to me that the last uh, identity that we revert to as human beings is what I think of as the wounded life. Um, which means that I may not get all the happiness, I may not get all the blessings or some of the blessings that I want, I may not be able to protect myself, but I'm going to find some people who will hear my sad story of my life and how I've been wounded and victimized, and they will pour something into me. They will understand me. They will care for me. They will come through for me. So at least I can have something in my little soul now that some little drops in there that will feel good. And that becomes, without even knowing it, our identity and our persona. That's how we relate to the people in our life. As empty people holding out an empty cup, holding you'll put a few drops in it so I can feel better about me. Now, there's obviously places for understanding and encouragement. I love what Ariana said last night about family. All those things are true. But the wounded life is, this becomes the central story of my life. The primary story. Every day, I move into my world with this agenda. And this happens without us even knowing it. Now, I loved hearing, Ariana, where, where are you? Raise your hand. Back over there. I loved hearing your story last night. And it illustrated, it really illustrated the, uh, the Bible story I want to do today. Uh, you heard a tragic story last night in her story. Nobody should have to have a father like that or a mother like that or two brothers like that. But what you didn't hear in her story was the metaphor of the wounded life where her wounds became the primary story of her life. And she is now trying to, to get her soul bandaged and fixed and repaired by focusing more on herself and, and what she could do to become a whole person. That, that, it doesn't work that way. What you hear, the main, the main identity you heard was family. Her brothers and sisters in Christ. She's on the right track. Um, when I think about the wounded life. I think the the general plot line of our story is repair. I'm damaged goods. Something needs to be done to my soul to repair me. Uh, my identity becomes that of victim, outcast, cast aside. Sort of a "woe is me" mentality. Um, the pull that you will have on the people around you is, please understand me. Please understand my pain. Please take care of me. Please encourage me. Please build me up. Again, those things are, are, are important, they're part of our fellowship, but not as the primary, the, as primary in your life. Uh, it's others that's primary. And then the persona is something, it can be a whole bunch of different things, but in my life, whenever I find myself sort of dipping down into the wounded life, uh, my persona is something of the noble struggler. Hear my story and hear of all, hear of all the things that I've had to, to try to work through and overcome, and, and yet somehow I'm coming out on top. So Be, be impressed with that. Do you hear the self-centeredness that, that's driving this? That's not what we're trying to do. Now, what happens... When when this continues on over the course of a life, Uh, and I wrote a poem just uh, a few days ago that I'd like to read to you, a short poem, that what happens to the wounded life over a long period of time, when that that continues to be the primary identity and the persona out of which I relate to the people around me. Her life's outer story was forged in tragic pain, fueled by self-protection, And what crumbs she should gain. Why would I turn to God? Where was he years ago? I can protect my heart. Him? No desire to know. What happens to a heart when God, we turn away? The maker of our heart. From him we run and stray. Does she dare run from the maker of her soul? Is it still possible that she can be made whole? Her heart's outer layer, like rock, will turn to crust. What could have been soft flesh turns to reddish-brown rust. Harder and harder still, like a castle's stone wall. Neither moat nor a bridge, her heart draped, a black pall. Her heart's inner workings, what should have teemed with life, Royals with inner outrage, now clever in making strife. Her anger eats away, makes a hollow vacuum. No sun, capital S, no light softens. Her heart makes her own doom. An innocence, capital I, cruel death, can break the outer crust. His sacrificial love, her heart, she can entrust. Cleansing out arrogance, a renewed heart to give out of the tombs of death that she might truly live. And that's the story we're going to look at today. Let's look at a few verses before we get into our story. Thank you. I was wondering. Okay, great. My speaking notes have disappeared. A few verses. Uh, John 11. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection, and the life he who believes in me uh, will live even though he dies. Now, we think of this usually in terms of physical death and physical life. That's surely true, and the hope of the resurrection is an important doctrine. But that's not all this verse means. When we die to this way of life, in whatever form it is over here, what he wants to do is give us life in our souls, in our hearts. Now, not just for ourselves, but then we become dispensers of that life to the people around us, both non-Christians and our Christian brothers and sisters. First 1 Peter 1, 1.3 What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master, Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release for the prisoners. Now, this verse is filled with metaphors. This is not a social justice verse. It's filled with metaphors about the great redemptive story of God who's coming after a people who are lost, prisoners in sin, captives to Satan who are poor uh, in, the, in their relationship with God to do something for them. Uh, now, as we look at the man of the tombs, I'm, I'm stuck, struck about there are two different kinds of bondage that we'll see in the story. There's an outer bondage, which is the primary thing that you see uh, in the man of the tombs, but there's also an inner bondage. The outer bondage for, for us are things like uh, uh, any kind of addictions, or porn, or come through for me as primary in my life. And there's there's also inner kinds of uh, bondage like uh, bitterness and fear and anxiety uh, and depression that is non-physiological depression. If you deal with depression, go to a doctor. If the doctor recommends meds, I recommend you take them. But there's also another kind of depression that has to do with an inner bondage. We're somewhere over on this stage rather than over on this stage. Now let's go to our story. Uh, Mark 5 starts, they went across the lake. This is the disciples to the region of the Gerasenes. Verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And I want you to picture uh, the sea and the boat coming up on the land, and, and, and the, the, the hills rise up above there, and up at the top of the hills was there, there was some type of uh, cemetery, uh, or, or what, what's called man of the tombs there, uh, rocks and boulders and the place of the dead is the idea. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So you see that this guy had been a part of the, of the village, but he just became completely unmanageable, uncorrigible. Uh, They tried to chain him, but even that, they couldn't do him. Their hope was that he would stay up uh, away from the village. He had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, the man of the tombs is a story of the last vestige of the wounded life. When I'm using him as an example of the wounded life, uh, this is is the last last car on the train, this picture. But there are a lot of of cars short of what this this, uh, really extreme picture you're going to see uh, in terms of the wounded life. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into him. So just up the seashore, uh, there were some hills, a cliff about 1,100 feet high. And the the man of the tombs pointed up to the the hillside. And there were several thousand pigs up there and a couple of pig farmers. And the demons were saying, "Uh, don't send us to hell. Send us into the pigs. Verse 13. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, so far, the picture we have is what I think of as outer bondage. That's what's most vivid here, even though he certainly is a man of inner bondage too. But the story is not just about outer bondage of the man of the tombs. There's also an inner bondage, and here I think the bondage of the nice people. The nice people in the story, the two pig farmers, and in a minute, the people of the town. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. What could those pig farmers have done instead? Why did they run back into town? Why did they not run down to the seashore? Those who had seen it told the oh, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. A bunch of the people from the town come out to see this thing. They're all looking at this spectacle. Jesus and his twelve disciples, and the and the boat, and this this demoniac that they all knew, who was dressed and in his right mind. And they said, and that, and then it says, they were afraid. Why would they be afraid? Why would they not cheer? Why would they not rejoice? Because cheering and rejoicing did not fit in with their pursuit of the good life and the managed life. Their life was getting disrupted. And we don't like it when God disrupts our lives. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You hear that? The Savior of the world, God incarnate, has visited just outside of their village. And their response is, get out of here. Please, please go away. Whatever it is you're up to, whatever you're doing, we don't want any part of. Imagine that. Now, why would they do this? There are a couple of notes in your handout here. We experience fear whenever whatever we think will bring us happiness is threatened. Whatever, our hearts have defined as this is life, this is happiness. In this case, with the, 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 the uh, pig herders, uh, farmers, and the people, the undisrupted life. I want everything to go smoothly. I don't want any to be, to be hassled that much. That's what, they're, what I sense here is what they wanted. That was their definition of happiness. And when that is threatened, we become afraid. The problem, hear me carefully, the problem is not fear. The problem is what I define as life. If I continue to define life by the unsettled life and everything going smoothly, whenever my life is more like a roller coaster, I will fear. The same with anxiety. Next. I cannot control the factors I deem important to my happiness. We don't live in that kind of world. And, in addition, God is the great disruptor. He he does this to give us a different kind of happiness on the left side of the stage. The people remind me of from Job 21. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways, Who is the almighty that we should serve him? But their prosperity is not in their hands. And then God will sometimes sacrifice what is good for the sake of the best. He wants us to discover him. That is the treasure. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, he becomes the first evangelist. Now, you heard my story um, yesterday about about my shock. I'm supposed to go in the professional ministry? Are you sure? It seemed to me that I was the most unlikely candidate that God could pick. And yet I would say, he was less likely than me. But he was the first guy the first event, the first testimony. What did he have going for him? He didn't have a stellar background he could go. He didn't have years at the seminary. He hadn't been a part of challenge for a couple years. He wasn't in leadership. All he had was a story. And from Jesus' point of view, that was enough. Go tell your story, he says. Go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had... Mercy on you. So he went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, which means ten cities or ten villages, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Well, I guess so. All right, why don't you put your pens down. Done taking notes till we finish this message. all night on that boat in the darkness the wind was in our face the whole time sometimes the boat seemed like it was going to get swamped and we begged Jesus to do something about it but, but, but he seemed to be just perfectly at peace we fought the wind all night we finally reached the other side of the shore about the break of dawn the wind finally subsided and we could finally hear our boat slide up on the sandy beach we got out The fog was rolling off the Sea of Galilee onto the the shore and, and up the hills. It was quiet, except for the sound of the water lapping onto the back of our boat. And then we heard the most eerie sound we'd ever heard. I'd never heard anything like it. Was it man? Was it a beast? Was it a demon? In some sense, it seemed like all three. It was a loud moan. And there was rage in the voice. And there was despair. And somehow that voice came down through the clouds to the hillside and met our ears. We tried to look through the fog to see who or what it was, but we couldn't. Then we heard the clanking of metal Loud metal, and the metal was moving towards us. And we looked through the fog. We still couldn't see it until finally, about halfway down the hill, we saw him, or it—a creature. He looked human, sort of. He was naked. Had long matted black hair and a beard that hung down almost to his waist, and you could see the, that he had shackles on his wrists and on his ankles. And the, the, uh, the chains that apparently he had broken, that's the sound we heard of the clanking. And he was running toward us. I looked around at my other friends, and we were all kind of backing up towards the boat, like we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But then we looked over at Jesus, and he just stood there like he was glad this fellow was coming. we just froze the man came up and as we got closer he had scratch marks all over his arms all over his torso, all over his legs where apparently he had taken stones and cut himself and you could still see the scars of of the blood and of the bruises all over his body and as he got close, he fell down at Jesus' feet and he yelled out something something of I know who you are Lord of the Most High, don't send me off to torture me before my time. I looked at my friends and they looked at me and we'd never seen anything like this before. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the man answered, or was it the man and a whole other voices a cacophony of sound. It came from his mouth, but it was like a chorus that said, We are legion, for we are many. And I thought, Legion? That's 6,000 soldiers. And with the word, Jesus said, Go. And suddenly, up on the hillside, we heard a frenzy of activity, a cacophony of sound, oinks and squeals, and the pigs running into each other all over that hillside. And finally, they, they sort of organized themselves into a stampede. And down the hillside, they went to the edge of the cliff, and they plummeted down 1,100 feet down into the Sea of Galilee below, each one making its own splat and splash, one after another. And we watched for what seemed like three or four or five minutes in awe. The last pig finally landed. And when we turned to look back at Jesus and the man, the man was sitting down. And Jesus had taken his cloak off and put it on the man. And they were both sitting down facing each other, having the most delightful conversation. I think we just caught the tail end of the conversation he was saying Jesus let me go with you let me go with these men as important as I thought that was and it seemed to me like a good idea the fellow obviously was going to need some seasoning Jesus saw something else in the man that he now had a story and that story was important and he said, go back to your family and friends. Go back around to the villages where you go and tell that story. Now, one of the things that strikes me about this particular, about this particular story is that it's one of, the, one of the best stories I know of someone who's about as close to hell as we think of it as one can be in this life. If you ask a normal Christian, uh, are you saved? And they say yes. And if you ask them, what are you saved from? Uh, You're gonna hear saved from hell, saved from the penalty of my sin, Um, forgiven. And those things are all certainly true but there's so much more. This is called Saved From. Saved from eternal loneliness. Saved from gut-wrenching emptiness. Saved from vile teeth gnashing regret. Saved from sin's dark black silhouette. Saved from all my foolish choices. Saved from my head's hellish voices. Saved from relational drama. Save from the horror of trauma. Save from slavery of addictions. Save from depressing afflictions. Save from others' fiendish guilt trips. Save from my annoying head trips. Save from my old hellish mindset. Save from skeletons in my closet. Save from all the times that hell lied. Save from the dark dungeon of my pride. Save from the hollows of sadness, save from the gallows of madness, save from haunting ghosts of my past, save from carnage of sins amassed, save from murky, infernal gloom, save from gloomy, eternal doom, save from haunting worries and fears, save from miserable griefs and tears. Save from craziness that I built. Save from unending pangs of guilt. Save from dreary discouragement, save from the specter of judgment. Same, save from alleys going nowhere, same from valleys of dark despair. Save from prisons self-obsession, save from fogs, mists of depression. Save from the phantom of failure. Save from self's ghastly behavior. Save from the stronghold of anger. Save from relational rancor. Save from critics' criticism. Save from cynics' cynicism. Save from skeptics' skepticism. Save from ego's egoism. Save from worries' insanity. Save from fretting's captivity. Save from draining anxiety. Save from craven fear's irony. Save from those with political rage, save from those with fiery outrage, save from those on their next rampage, save from some who are ever enraged, save from chains of depravity, save from damning hostility, save from grin howls of vanity, save from doomed endless misery. Save from, from gloomy melancholy. Save from empty despondency. Save from heartbreaking lovelessness. Save from soul-crushing heartlessness. Save from man's animosity. Save from man's inhumanity. Save from never-ending frenzy. Save from infernos of fury. Save from vehement agony. Save from Satan's ferocity. Saved from eternal tragedy. Saved from hopeless finality. Let's pray together. Father, as we finish out this weekend, of speaking about identity. I hope that you have given us new eyes to see the wonder of the redemptive story that you're trying to tell us through our lives. And in one sense, how stubbornly, rebelliously, we insist on creating our own identity in whatever form or fashion, the right-hand stage we've looked at. And what folly it is. No matter how far away from you we have gone, no matter how stubbornly we hold on to our old identities and personas, you will relentlessly come to pull out of us and to crack those identities and weaken them over the course of our entire life and little by little to again center us in the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of Jesus Christ. And that we are part of your great redemptive story. Not about fixing ourselves. But about looking to you. As the only one that can meet the deepest needs of the soul. And then not turning us inward but outward. To be tellers of the great redemptive story. The story of the gospel. And the story of a changed life.